You did what you were supposed to do to get ahead. You got a college or university degree, landed a good job, paid down your debt, tried to save money. Maybe you did all this stuff. But then inflation spiked, salaries stagnated, and house prices soared. This combo gets in the way of millennials and Gen Zs achieving the middle-class lifestyle that older generations enjoyed. Welcome to Stress Test, a personal finance podcast for millennials and Gen Z. I'm Rob Carrick, personal finance columnist at The Globe and Mail. And I'm Roma Luzio, personal finance editor. Our episode this week is inspired by Globe contributor Bridget Casey. She wrote a column arguing that there's no millennial middle class. Roma, what was the gist of that column? Well, you basically laid it out. She poked holes in this idea that all millennials are worse off than their parents. And she basically said that the reality is more nuanced. Today's millennials consist of a small number who are thriving financially early in life. They're basically quite wealthy and everyone else is not. So to break it down by numbers, she wrote that 10% of millennials hold about 55% of the total wealth of their generation. They tend to be homeowners, they have low debt, high levels of saving, they have investments. They're thriving, while the bottom 90% are struggling. So Rob, how did we get here? Well, I think a large part of it is house prices soaring into the stratosphere and incomes not. So you've got this giant gap between what people can afford to buy and the price of houses. And let's face it, we define our middle-class existence in large part by whether we can get into the housing market. I mean, middle-class life in Canada was defined by I own a house. That's a core of my middle-class existence. And there is a huge and growing group that cannot get in. They feel they have set themselves up in a way their parents did. They're knocking on the door, but nobody's answering. They cannot afford to get in. Okay, so we know that this column resonated with young Canadians. There were over a thousand comments on various Reddit threads. One of them really stood out to me, and it was a young man that wrote that he feels that there's a significant class of millennials who are in limbo now. They have no debt. They have decent savings. They have no ability to buy a home. So they're not hurting, but they're not making any forward progress. And I think that is a very difficult position to be in. After the break, we hear from one of the Reddit commenters on why he feels stuck outside the middle class despite making an average income and living debt-free. Stress Test is brought to you by CPP Investments, manager of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. The fund is sustainable with over $500 billion in assets, thanks to CPP Investments. Learn more at cppinvestments.com. My name's Cody. I'm 33. I'm from Burlington, living in Hamilton, Ontario. Cody works in sales. He and his wife rent an apartment and his sons, who are 7 and 10, live with them part-time. Cody finished high school and his wife has a college degree. Their household income is about $140,000, but they don't see themselves as middle class. I feel like I'm still just getting started, even though I've been starting for many years, you know? I've been worried about it for a good 10 years, and it doesn't feel like uh, I've gotten any further along. Cody started saving when he was 25. He and his wife have set aside about $20,000 for a down payment. But she's self-employed and just started her career eight months ago. That means the bank will only approve them for a mortgage of $300,000. That isn't close to enough to buy something where they live. Cody just feels like the goalposts keep moving. Uh, we don't have any debt. 
And at first I was told that if uh, when I went to go look into the mortgages and when she was about to graduate, we were told, oh, work on your credit and come back. And then I found out that basically as long as it's above $650, you are you are good to qualify for a mortgage. And I've never been below $650. i have never had any debt. I've, I felt honestly lied to because the real problem is that my income just isn't enough. My income is basically the average uh, in the province. I don't understand the barriers to entry for getting my first house and getting going and feeling like I'm established. I'm 33. I've had with no debt. What is the problem here? I should be the ideal person that you should feel comfortable giving a loan to. But instead, uh, yeah, I'm the last person, I guess. They aren't able to move away from the region because he shares custody of his kids with their mother. Still, they're determined to buy a home. Because I don't want to pay rent. (laughs) Because so much of my money goes into rent and it's a waste. But also we feel stuck here too because we have, you know, we're paying $12.50 for a two-bedroom apartment with a washer and dishwasher. You know what I mean? Like that's hard to find. Uh, If we got the same apartment in the same complex, we're at least 1800 right now. So even though we've, I work from home, so I've grown to despise this place and I hate this apartment, but it, there's nothing. It's we're here until we can buy. And that just, yeah, it just is getting further and further away. It feels like rather than closer. And I keep feeling like we're so close. That's the problem too, is like we're, we're able to save so much money and it feels like, okay, this is it. This is it. And uh, like, oh, now my credit. Now, now we have the down payment. Now we have this. Now we have that. And it's just brick wall after brick wall. Surprise, brick wall too. Looking back, Cody says he would have put more money away and got into the housing market earlier. But he believes the government and banks should make it easier for people to get into their first homes. For him, the concept of the middle class and home ownership are tied together. I don't know if all cultures and and places are like this, but it seems like that's what you do once you're in the middle class in Canada is purchasing that house. And that's a huge part of your retirement. And uh, what if you want to, you know, borrow any money or any loans or anything, that's a huge asset that they all look for. I just don't feel like there really is a middle class. Like, I feel like I would so rock solidly fit like literally, if you look up what's the average salary, that's that's what I'm making. You know what I mean? Like it's it's it seems like I shouldn't feel, you know, like I'm behind or I'm doing what what's asked of me. So I don't feel like there is a middle class. It feels like, you know, when my mom was a waitress going through school, our apartment was not terribly different from this, you know, as a single mother raising the hell out of me. It, this is about this is on par with what what we had, you know. Cody's mom and stepdad saved up and bought a townhouse 15 years ago for about $250,000. That same model now sells for $800,000. It leaves Cody feeling frustrated and worried that without buying property, he'll never be able to retire. Uh, uh, Constantly. That's my number one goal. I am so tired of making other assholes rich. I am ready to relax and make the choices and do the things I want to do. I'm I'm afraid to work all my life. That's what I'm afraid of. So I've always been worried about retirement. And then house ownership is the first step towards it in that direction. So I thought I could save aggressively and live frugally enough and, um, you know, do do it on my own accord. 
And I didn't find out until a few months ago at 33 that that was not an option, that that is impossible unless I'm making like 200K a year. It's the most frustrating thing because I just spent so many years thinking I was getting closer to that. (laughs) You can really hear Cody's frustration. And I know a lot of you can relate. Next up, we'll hear from an intergenerational expert on why Cody is far from alone in feeling like he's not part of the middle class. CPP Investments is proud to manage the assets of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. The Canada Pension Plan provides retirees a solid income foundation. In support of that important priority, we've built a well-balanced and globally diversified portfolio. It's designed to be resilient in the face of wide-ranging market and economic conditions. Through good times and bad, our professional investment teams have helped make CPP a plan that contributors and beneficiaries can count on for generations to come. Learn more at cppinvestments.com. Paul Kershaw is a professor at the University of British Columbia and founder of Generation Squeeze, a group that researches intergenerational fairness. He joined us to discuss why many millennials feel like the middle class is dead. To start off with, Paul, can you define for us what middle class means? I do tend to find myself going to what's an OECD definition where, you know, it's someone making somewhere between 75 and 200% of the average household income or median household income. But I actually don't find it a very compelling definition, to be honest with you, uh, because when I Uh, when I go and look at what people think is the middle class, I'm struck by how literally, I believe it shows like 90 plus percent of people uh, self-identify as being in the middle class. And that makes me think something really interesting is going on. Notably, nobody thinks they're rich. You don't just have to be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk to be rich. And I think that we've lost track of how People with decent earnings in homes that have so skyrocketed are now, you know, not living a middle class lifestyle, but they should be considered more affluent. And that's a hard thing to talk about in Canadian society these days. So, Paul, how do you think the millennial middle class compares to the middle class of other generations? Now, there, you, you cited the OECD. It has a report that says about 59% of Canadian millennials are middle class compared to 70% of boomers at the same age. Does that ring true to you? Yeah, I'm not sure about the specific data points, but the idea that there are fewer young people experiencing middle-class standard of living today is, I would say, beyond contestation in the data. Like Younger folks go to post-secondary more, pay more for the privilege to land jobs where the earnings after adjusting for inflation are down thousands of dollars, only to face housing prices that are up hundreds of thousands of dollars, pushing home ownership out of reach for more. As a result, they're competing more for the available rental. Their consolation prize is rising rents. They're delaying starting their uh, their own homes. That means they delay starting their families when they can delay no longer because their biological clocks are TikToking. They then face childcare that has been another rent-sized uh, cost in their lives. You don't have the success sequence for a younger demographic 
go to school, land a good job, and then you too can afford secure housing that allows you to start your family in an easy way. That is so much out of, further out of reach these days by comparison with just a few decades ago. Paul, why is the middle class shrinking? I think it is a fundamental combination of the earnings that people make. The earnings, you know, they are down for a younger demographic, slightly up for an older demographic, but it's not the earnings story that is like defining what is middle classness or shaping that standard of living. It's the growing gap between what full-time earnings can pay for and the cost of our major cost of living housing. That gap is fundamentally transforming the standard of living in Canada in a very harmful way for younger Canadians. The system has tolerated a relentless increase in housing prices over now decades that has eroded the way that hard work pays off for younger Canadians. Here's one of my favorite stats. When my mom started out in the housing market in the mid-1970s as a young Canadian woman, it took five years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average priced home in this country. It was the case in Metro Vancouver, where my mom happened to be, in BC, in Ontario, in the GTA, across Canada. About five, five to six years. But if you flash forward to today in Canada, on average now, it is 17 years. It's over 20 in Ontario and BC, and in the GTA and Metro Vancouver, it's like 27 years. Just think about what that means for how much more hard work is required to simply try and cobble together a down payment on an average home, which is more often not in our cities, a condo with a balcony, not some home that has access to a yard. Now, culturally in Canada, how important is home ownership to the idea of being middle class? Are they intertwined? Is it a done deal? If you're middle class, you could get a house. Is that the historical norm in Canada? I think it was the historical norm. I don't know what it, if it's the case going forward any longer. I certainly know many a talented millennial and Gen Z, more so than the Gen Xers, the millennials and Gen Z being hammered more by the high housing prices. So people with master's degrees, decent paying jobs for whom home ownership is not likely in their reach. So they're starting to move away from contemplating it. And you can see, you can feel them wrestling and being frustrated, sometimes worried. What am I doing wrong? Am I failing? How can my parents do this? How am I not living up to what my parents did? They worked hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm failing them. And so there's so much anxiety amongst a younger demographic because of the way in which home ownership has been pushed out of reach. One last caveat though. There are many cool cities on this planet where homeownership has not been the norm for some time, whether that's New York or London or many parts of Europe. And so I do think we can have a proud younger middle class that makes home as renters, but then we need to level the playing field between the way that policy supports homeowners and policy doesn't support renters. And I think that will be a key conversation if we do redefine middle classness in the future. We also have to change the psychology of the younger generation because all the surveys I've seen suggest they are extremely focused on getting into the housing market. Now, let's talk some numbers. What is the home ownership rate for millennials and how does it compare to older generations? So back in 1977, uh, over 40% of uh, people under 35 were homeowners, and now it's down to around 35, 36%. Um, 35 to 44 year olds back in the day around 1977, fully almost three quarters of them were homeowners. Now it's down to just over 60%. So those are some significant declines in home ownership, according to Statistics Canada data across decades. Housing is the quintessential generational tension 
in Canadian society. High home prices aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good. It's all about your timing. And the timing is often a lottery of when you were born. And so for those who got in the housing market some time ago, home ownership has been an increasingly available thing as you've aged. For those starting more recently, it's increasingly out of reach. And then you, you talked just a moment ago, Rob, about how a younger demographic, the polling suggests they want to get into home ownership. Well, how can you blame them? It looks like a lovely gravy train. If you're seeing others around you getting wealthier while they're sleeping or cooking or watching TV and having a nice home with some security, why wouldn't you want that for yourself? But this is a challenge because it reflects a broader cultural orientation, or what I would dare say is almost a cultural addiction in Canada to high and rising home values. People of various age groups are entangled in a hope that once they get into the housing market, home prices will continue to rise, which is good for an individual, but horrible for the system, especially for those who follow in our footsteps. Paul, how has the pandemic affected the middle class of young adults compared to other generations? Well, I really hope that listeners will take away that it, it's not the pandemic where we're seeing the sudden moment of middle class deterioration or hollowing up for younger Canadians. This has been a relentless multi-year, decades long trajectory that I, you can see it start to some degree in the 80s, but it really took off after the year 2000. So, But then what happened in the pandemic is two important things. We had low interest rates go even lower still to this ultra loose monetary policy, which allowed people to borrow even more to bid up the cost of housing, because that's what Canadians do. When we borrow, we don't invest in things as much as we should outside of real estate. We bring it into real estate and we bid up the price of housing. Simultaneous to that, the pandemic shoved so many people to work from home and away from their place of employment, which freed up an opportunity for people to think, oh, I don't have to live that close to major urban centers. I can move further afield. And so as the pandemic was spreading the contagion of COVID-19, the combination of ultra low interest rates and the ability to move further from where we work helped to spread the epidemic of housing unaffordability and housing wealth inequality, which is why we have seen the most dramatic increases in housing prices at a percentage level in more modest sized communities, especially in BC and Ontario over the last two years. Paul, what does it mean to young people if to get into the housing market, they need a million dollar mortgage? Yeah, you know, this is what makes systems change so darn challenging. So many hardworking, talented, fortunate younger folks have managed to secure incomes with low interest rates that allow them to borrow what not that long ago would have been viewed as an obscene amount of money. Um, and so the, we've taken on, they've taken on substantial debt risks to pursue home ownership. But then, of course, we've got now a group of young folks. This is the Gen Squeeze demographic who are now priced into desperately hoping home prices don't fall because that starts to then put them at real financial risk. And so then we lock the younger demographic into hoping that the very problem that they've been suffering will continue persist and worsen for those who follow, which AKA will be their kids. This is the tragedy that we need to break. We need to ask that younger demographic, we need to be the change. We need to know how hard it has been to hack into the system and know that we can't want that for those who follow. 
even as we know we've taken on these risks. And so, you know, we have to like hope that home prices stall and we don't fall underwater. But at the same time, we can't want it to be the gravy train for us that it has been for many before. Aside from home ownership, what defines a middle-class life? I think that it's a sense of security. I think when we're talking about the hollowing out of the middle class for a younger demographic, we are eroding the security. And let's just be clear how profound that can be. Because when you erode security, you have people defer, delay, doing some of the most fundamentally important things in our lives. In the last few decades, we've seen a rapid increase in the average age of women giving birth. Now, and we see this especially in BC, which has had the highest levels of unaffordability. Why is Paul talking about this right now? Because it's reflecting a coping mechanism in response to a lack of security in housing and a lack of affordability. And so people say, I'm not going to have my kids just yet. But then you reach a biological moment where your clock is tick-tocking, tick-tocking. You can only delay so long. And so people are then launching into having their kids later on. So we are missing out on love. We're missing out on having the kids. And any parent will tell you kids can be stressful and hard, but the people will awful self-define by saying kids were the most important thing in my life. And I'll back up even one moment before having kids. In the early 1980s, the typical 20-year-old was more likely to be living with a significant other than living at home with adult parents. If you flash forward to today, the typical 20-something-year-old is more likely to be living at home with older parents than actually finding a way to couple up with a significant other. That's talking about how the, the hollowing out of the middle class for younger folks is eroding the ability to have our love lives. And that is so darn significant. Paul, I'm struck by the lack of interest and concern on the part of politicians and uh, older generations to these problems. They've been apparent since uh, the financial crisis and this boomerang generation of young people having to move home. We haven't really made any progress in addressing their concerns at the same time as these concerns have become a lot more acute. Why do you think no one in a position of power seems to willing or interested to do anything about this hollowing out of the middle class for young people in particular? I think this goes to an earlier part of our conversation. We have this cultural addiction to high and rising home prices. The hollowing out of the middle class has been harmful for a younger demographic, but it has been positive for an older demographic. And I guess increasingly, I'm pretty darn middle-aged at this moment. And so you can see how people can get normalized. We can normalize and get accustomed to like, oh, the home the housing I purchased to make a home for myself and my kids, et cetera, can also be a great and easy way to have a lovely standard of living down the road in retirement. And we have a world of politics that is nervous about disrupting that in no small part for two reasons. One, older folks are more likely to vote. Two, we have cultural narratives that incline us to think not only are there lazy millennials who drink too much coffee and eat too many pieces of avocado toast, but that we have the myth of the poor retiree or the poor senior. But the seniors actually have the lowest rates of poverty of any age group in the country. And the Canadian Association of Retired Persons brags that they have the most wealth. And so we have a mismatch between who we think is economically vulnerable and who actually is in the world of politics. Further to inequality, how important is it to the financial success of a young adult of getting into and even up and out of the middle class? How important is it to have parents who are wealthy and who are, who are financially secure? 
Well, unfortunately, it seems to be becoming more and more important, which is a problem for intergenerational fairness. It's a problem just uh, for a quality of opportunity in this country. And I will confess, I just can't stand the phrase, the bank of mom and dad. The bank of mom and dad implies that many young adults today are, you know, they're still they're infantilized. They're still being children because they can't break their reliance on parents' largesse. And if it's only because the parents are working hard and being noble and caring for their kids in an ongoing way that, of course, that's how they're helping out their kids to somehow make up for their inadequacies as becoming young adults because they're not maybe able to make a home on their own without financial support. But that further fuels the individualization of the problem and doesn't rec- represent the reality of why does an aging group of people who are now being talked about as the bank of mom and dad, why do they have that equity increase in their homes? Because their kids' generations have gone to school longer, accepted jobs that pay less, and been tolerating working harder and harder and harder to try and pay for the major cost of living, housing via their rent, or in bidding up the cost of housing as they borrow more from a bank. It's the hard work of a younger demographic that's growing the equity of the quote-unquote bank of mom and dad, who we we so valorize, we so speak of proudly, and then we make a younger demographic feel like they're failing. And yet it's their hard work that is actually growing the banks of those older aging moms and dads. And we need to reframe around that and make sure that we acknowledge with pride just how darn hard a younger demographic is working to try and straddle the gap between full-time earnings that have lost ground relative to the major cost of living. And, and then your question, so what does that mean if you can't do that? What if you don't hack into this broken or this dysfunctional housing system? It's, this housing system's working great for an older demographic. People like me are getting wealthier. It's just hurting a younger demographic. You can't hack into that. Then we do have a risk that today's younger folks who have high levels of economic insecurity in a few decades when they become retirees will have more income insecurity. And so right now, seniors have the lowest rates of poverty and the most wealth, but we may not see that when this millennial group reaches their own period of being retirees down the road. Paul, our conversation is being a bit on the downer side. What can you offer young adults to that offers encouragement that they will make it into the middle class, that they will have a financially successful life and a full life of experiences and uh, with family and home ownership and everything else? Oh, great. Let's end, let's end with hope. So first, there remains time for us to beg and plead with our political leaders to say, minimally, to restore affordability for all, we need home prices to stall so that earnings can catch up. That becomes the pathway back for a younger demographic to experience the kind of middle-class standard of living that had become the norm a couple of decades ago. And clearly, home prices are going to have to stall with earnings rising for many years ahead to make that a reality. It's not a one-year kind of stall. This is a many years of home prices stalling so earnings can catch up. That that could still be in our reach. And how do we bring it about? Well, we can tap into something that does exist at the intergenerational table, that it does exist within families, love. There is a tension between older and younger Canadians, but within families, moms and grandmas love their kids and grandchildren. And I think that we can tap into that, that, that familial love that is pervasive throughout Canadian society, and then work hard to bring it into the world of politics. And we are going to need an older demographic who has their own financial 
insecurities and worries about what it's going to look like to be aging in the contemporary context, but have them not only focus on the cultural orientation we have right now, worrying about uh, uh, an aging population, but can they use their voices in defense of themselves and their kids and grandchildren? Can we invite that older population and can millennials and Gen Z work with their parents to say, how do we help you leave a proud legacy for us and those who follow in our footsteps? Because right now the history books are not necessarily going to judge the baby boom population, I think, as well as many of those hardworking baby boomers who want them to be judged. The housing system has been broken under their watch. The climate is being broken under their watch. We are leaving larger government debts than have ever, you know, than were inherited by baby boomers. These are some negatives about the legacy. I don't think it's what you know, the aging family members in my life want to leave for me and their, you know, the younger kids in our family. Uh, and so I think that it is the love that we tap into to fix this situation. Who do a personal finance podcast would land on love as a solution to the problems faced by millennials and Gen Z? Roma, what's your reaction to what we heard today? Well, it's frustrating and upsetting As personal finance journalists, we are here to present solutions and takeaways. And this is something for which there's no easy answer. I mean, what is the way forward? So frustrating for us because I would love to be able to tell millennials, you take steps A, B, and C, you save harder and spend less and do this and do that, and you'll be fine. And yet I don't have a roadmap out of this. And I think that I would totally encourage people to stick to personal finance basics like managing your debt and investing aggressively for the future and keeping some savings on hand. But I think we have to recognize the world is changing rapidly. I don't think the final chapter has been written on millennials and the middle class. You know, housing is evolving. It's slowing down. Maybe things will get brighter. I don't want, I don't want to eliminate all hope. That said, we'll urge you to take these takeaways with a grain of salt. One, if you're feeling frustrated or stuck about your progression, you're not alone. Know that the current economic and housing reality is indeed stacked against you. Two, the pandemic has intensified all of the inequities that were already in place, but no one knows what the future holds. So keep your debt levels low, save as much as you can, and be ready in case an opportunity opens up in the housing market. Three, if you're in your 20s and 30s, you still have time to reach milestones. You will work and live longer than previous generations, giving you more time to buy a home, build your savings, and yes, retire. Thank you for listening to Stress Test. This show was produced by Kyle Fulton, Emily Jackson, and Zara Kozema. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to Cody and Paul Kershaw for joining us this week. And a shout out to Paul's podcast, Hard Truths. Give it a listen. You can find Stress Test on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like this episode, dark as it was, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. Next up on Stress Test, you're worried about climate change, but you also want to make money. Can you be a successful green investor? We explore the growing field of socially responsible investing and ask how you can balance ethical concerns with financial goals. Until then, find us at theglobamail.com. Thanks for listening. Stress Test is brought to you by CPP Investments, manager of the Canada Pension Plan Fund. Canadians can be confident in the fund's sustainability. In the last 10 years, CPP Investments has earned more than $300 billion for the Canada Pension Plan. 
With over $500 billion invested around the world, CPP is set to provide a retirement income foundation for generations to come. Learn more at cppinvestments.com.